Hey, good morning, North. Back to our series. Really welcome to the final few weeks of our series, Live, Die, Give. We've been looking at the gospel's call on our lives as disciples, this call to live for Christ daily, to die to self day all over again, and to give our lives in service to others. Last week, our church planner and residence, Charles Wright, was with us, leading us in this conversation on what does it look like, what does it mean to give our lives in service to others. Now, quick sidebar on that, if you weren't with us, our, we had the opportunity as a church to commission our church plant. And so we prayed over Charles. They are beginning uh, weekly worship services now. And we challenge you to be a part of that by praying along with them, but also by giving, so to speak, as they set to launch. And we, we aimed to set a goal for ourselves of closing a gap. They had a $25,000 gap to finish off the, the budget that they need for the first year operations. And we challenged you to join us in that. So the elders stepped thousand down and invited you to help us meet the rest. You, you want to hear what God did through you last week? I got two people, so I'll tell you guys over here. Last week, you guys showed up in tremendous fashion. We were aiming $25,000. We raised over $36,000 and counting because you can still give today as they prepare to launch in, uh, on Palm Sunday next weekend. Fantastic. And Charles then last week led us. And what does it look like to give our lives in service to others? What does Jesus say? Jesus said, hey, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you've done for me. So what does it mean to give our lives in service to others? It means giving our lives to, Jesus said, the least, the hungry, the, the suffering, that when we show up for them, we're really honoring and serving Jesus. And he reminded us, hey, disciples live different then. Because of what God has done for us, we live different. We love others. But Jesus pushed the envelope a little bit. That it's not just about serving those who, who are, are suffering, because we, we can all see someone in those circumstances and be like, oh man, I feel for you in this moment. Jesus is going to broaden that, give our lives in service to the least, but also to the lost. And he's going to model that in giving his life to the person that no one else wanted to talk to. Turn with me in the scriptures to Luke chapter 5. Luke's in the New Testament, three quarters of the way through your Bible, uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you hit John, Acts, Romans, you've gone too far. And in Luke chapter five, Luke's chronicling the story of Jesus. Luke's a doctor. He takes a different look at the life of Jesus. And he highlights for us an odd moment when Jesus, as a rabbi, approaches an unexpected individual. We find it in Luke chapter five. If you don't have it in front of you, watch the screens. We'll put it up uh, for you to follow along. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rode him. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now just stop there with me. 
Jesus had just begun his ministry at this point in Luke. We see him beginning his ministry in Luke chapter 4. As he begins his ministry, he begins preaching. He begins going out and, and healing people. And then as you come into chapter 5, Jesus calls his very first disciples. So he's really just kicking off his ministry here. James and John, in the beginning of chapter 5, continues on preaching, continues on with healing. And, and up to this point, everything that Jesus is doing makes sense. As a rabbi, Jesus is doing He's preaching the word. He's healing people. Somewhat expected in that culture, having compassion on people. He's calling men to follow him as disciples. Every rabbi had disciples. At this point in the story, every sense. Jesus the rabbi is doing rabbinic things. You might argue, well, kind of odd that he's choosing fishermen to follow him as disciples. But sure, odd. And yet these were good Jewish men. Rabbi would at least be willing to talk to publicly. But then Jesus goes and he does something unexpected. Verse 27, Luke tells us that he went out and he saw a tax named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. The same call that he'd given to Jewish fishermen, he now gives and extends to a tax collector. Now, now you something about tax collectors culturally to understand how Jesus is shaking things up and really bringing a scandal into the story. Tax collectors were typically them local contractors. Rome would hire and contract out locally in order to charge their taxes. And they would prefer to hire locals because Right, that, that's an easier sell, right? Jewish as opposed to someone Roman. But, but it was more than that. For, for Rome, they understood that locals understood the economy. They understood the goods and services better than they did. So they understood how to tax better. They also understood in the area because the Jewish community was so tightly knit. And understanding the families, then they knew exactly how many people you had in your household and exactly how much to charge you. And the way that a tax collector then would make his money is by charging over. And Rome didn't mind. It was standard practice. As, Rome is, as long as Rome got their share, they didn't really care how much a tax collector charged over and above. As a result, it's a very scrupulous and very underhanded. Tax collectors often were known to be extorters. Here's Levi, a Jew, but he's a tax collector. And these Levi is not a liked man. To say that he is frowned upon is an understatement. See, Rome is Israel's oppressor, and so Levi is helping the oppressor. This makes him, literally speaking, a traitor. And, and religiously speaking, they didn't just view tax collectors as traitors. They viewed them as committing an act of treason against God himself. Because these are God's people. You've turned on the kingdom. You've turned on the kingdom people. This is akin to if you have a neighbor who works for the IRS, you'd be like, yay, right? 
Like, no one loves hanging out with somebody who works at the IRS, but we could at least reason it, right? Like, you're probably good at math, right? Somebody has to be, so great, and you need a job, and awesome, right? Might not be the closest of friends, but I get it. But then imagine that your neighbor isn't just a tax collector for the IRS, but he's actually funding, funneling money to Russia. That's what it means to be a tax collector in this day and age. He's not just playing for the wrong team. He's helping the wrong team win at your expense. And Jesus sees a tax collector at the tax booth. And he calls to him with the same call, come and follow me. Notice it's not Levi that sees Jesus. It's not Levi that says, I've made a terrible mistake with my life. I repent. No. What is he doing in the text? He is actively collecting taxes, which means he is actively conducting his business of oppressing the people of God. And Jesus says to the enemy, come, follow me. I want you to associate with me. Jesus in this moment is doing far more than just selecting another disciple. Jesus in this moment is of the gospel. The God of the universe is approaching an enemy and inviting the enemy to draw close to him. It is the gospel. Paul would write it this way in the book of Romans, that while we were sinners, meaning while we were sitting in the tax booth ourselves, Christ died for us. Jesus approaches the man that everyone considered a traitor, perpetrating treason, and he says to the enemy of the state, come, follow me. In this moment, Jesus is making a point with his life and his actions that a disciple merely live out and live among other disciples a disciple is also to live in pursuit of those who have yet to become disciples. If this is Jesus' example for us, and if we're called as follow in the example of Jesus, then disciples are not to merely live out their existence among other disciples. We are called to live in pursuit of those who have yet to become disciples. Why? because it's what Jesus did. And as a disciple, we should say, if it was good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for me. If, if that's what Jesus did, then that's, that's what I should do. Live not just among other disciples, but live in pursuit of someone. Think about Jesus' final words to us at the end of the book of Matthew. We call it the Great Commission. We quote it often from this stage at the end of our services. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Not just the insiders, not with all nations, including Rome. And what's the very first word in the Great Commission? Go. It requires us to move towards the enemies of God. Jesus moves towards the enemy and invites him into fellowship. See, Jesus would never ask us to do something that he is unwilling to do himself. He sets the standard he goes towards the enemy, not to condemn the enemy, but I love the way that Frederick Bonhoeffer put it. He was a pastor, a theologian in Germany when Hitler was coming into power. He saw oppression 
firsthand. He stood up against it and as a result ended up in a concentration camp being killed. This is his take on the life of Jesus. It's not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The Christian belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered country club of a life. Bonhoeffer says we belong in the thick of foes. That's our commission. Many of you got commissioned, right, in the military. You received a commission you received an authority, a charge to go. This is Jesus' great commission. You are to go to all nations, and you're to make disciples of them. And he models it for us. And if Jesus' mission was to seek the lost, then it must be ours too. But the story isn't over. Look at what happens next. Pick it back up with me, verse 29, we'll reread. Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to sinners to repentance. Having been called by Jesus, notice Levi first leaves everything. It's a sign of repentance. He's turning away from his former life. He leaves everything. He leaves the tax booth. But before they set out on mission together, what does Levi do? He hosts a dinner party. Levi hosts a dinner party. It says in verse 29, he made a great feast. There's a great host. He gathered in this moment his co-workers, so other tax collectors, all of his own associates. He gathered any friends that he still had, any family members that hadn't, you know, excommunicated him along with the rest of the Jewish community. He brings them all into his home. It says it was a great feast. Levi is delighting in Jesus, and he wants his friends to delight in Jesus too. Think about that. This man knows he doesn't belong he knows he's ostracized. He knows what people sees it in their faces all the time. And yet Jesus has accepted him. Jesus has embraced him. And so in this moment, he is delighting in Jesus and he longs for his friends to delight in Jesus too. That he made extorting his own people, he now uses in thanksgiving to God, in gratitude to God, to throw a party for the son of God. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of the transformation of life. But notice that it's not just Levi who is embracing Jesus, it's Jesus who is embracing Levi and all of his friends. In the first century, understand, in the first century, to dine together at table together was very, very symbolic. To sit at table meant that you were embracing this person. You were choosing to fellowship with them, meaning you were choosing to tie your life with them in friendship and in some of solidarity. That you were willing to be seen with them and known by them, and you were willing to share your life to be known by them too. This is 
fellowship in this moment. Jesus is fellowshipping with Levi and all his tax-collecting friends. And he's willing to be seen in this moment, to be seen embracing them and accepting them. And this is why the Pharisees respond as they do. What does the text say? In verse 30, it says that they grumbled. They grumbled to disciples. Is Jesus too enthralled with those around him? So they grumble to the disciples. Sidebar for a moment. Permit me here. Whenever you see grumbling and complaining in the scripture, if you see that word, it is never, never, never spoken of as a righteous act coming from righteous lips. Grumbling is not the activity of the righteous. Grumbling comes from a place and a posture of the heart of superiority. Grumbling is about on. Grumbling says, I don't know why they made that decision. I would have done it differently. I don't know why they've chosen that. I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they think that or look like that or live like that or let their kids play like that. Grumbling looks down on because it believes it knows better. Never is it a righteous act, the righteous. And yet what we find in this moment is that those righteous men are on the periphery grumbling. They are looking down on God himself, the son of God. Jesus, in this moment, then responds to them. This is the second time in chapter 5 that Jesus knows their thoughts, perceives their thoughts. The first was when a paralytic was lowered through the roof earlier in chapter 5. Pharisees are at the back grumbling. How can you say that you forgive someone of their sins? Jesus is like, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat, walk and be healed. So to show that I have authority to forgive sins, get up, take your mat, walk. And they grumbled in the back. Jesus perceived it. He answered them. He showed that he was, in fact, the son of God. It's the second time in chapter five he shows he is the son of God. He perceives what they are thinking. Why? Because they grumble not to Jesus, but who? His disciples. We, never, we grumbled to all the other guys, right? Jesus perceives it, and so he responds. Here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Listen to Jesus' words. Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the sinners to repentance. He came, Jesus said, not hiding his mission, but revealing it full out and talking about it full out. He came not to start a country club for men but he came instead to run a rescue mission for the broken and the ungodly. I've come for the sick to call not the righteous but sinners. There, there's a to, to this scene, to Jesus saying this to the Pharisees in this moment. Because at face value, right, we get it. He, the sick need a doctor, not the well, and you've called not the righteous, but the sick. Like, we get it. And it looks like Jesus is setting this contrast, the righteous people and the tax collectors. But the irony in this is that the most unrighteous people in the story at this point are who? Tax 
the righteous ones, right? The most unrighteous people are the Pharisees, the righteous. Jesus is saying, I, it's the sick who need a doctor. The irony of this moment is the Pharisees think they are well, yet the theology of the scriptures teaches us that there's not a single, single one of us who is well. 23, we are all sinful, right? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a righteous man on all the earth who does what is right and never sins. I guarantee you, I, I know not, but I'll wager this bet, wager a bet that you have probably sinned at some point in your life. The theology of the scriptures, there's not a righteous man in all of the earth. Gender neutral. The theology of the scriptures is that all of us are unwell, and the Pharisees are proving it on the fly, grumbling in the back of the room. Nothing worse than when the religious people in the room begin grumbling about the unreligious. It simply shows that we are all unwell and in need of a physician. The irony in this, though, is how hard it is to get people to realize that they're unwell and in need of a physician. Let's face it, you love going to the doctor? Are you regular in your appointments? My annual visit was like three years ago. He's still waiting for me at the office. Right? I mean, we put these things off, especially the older we get, they wanna do more things. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't need that in my life. I really don't. And so in these moments, what do we do? We convince ourselves that we're fine convince ourselves, I'm well. I have no need for a doctor. I have no need for an annual checkup. You don't need to do that to me. Leave good enough alone. Even when we're sick, then we begin to convince ourselves, well, I'm not really sick. Like, I'm like Walmart over-the-counter drug sick, not like doctor visit prescription sick. We're constantly convincing ourselves that we're not in need. The irony is that theologically speaking, Jesus knows what the Pharisees have forgotten. We are all unwell and we are all in need. So it's not about whether or not you're sick. It's whether you're willing to acknowledge it. Jesus chooses in this moment to dine with those who understand their need. Jesus doesn't waste a lot of time with those who don't understand their need. He spends his time with those who do. I have come for the sick. To call not the righteous, but the unrighteous, the sinners. Eating together with them, dining with them, lingering at the table with them is how Jesus does it. And understand eating together in the first century again. This was not about food and refueling before you get back to work. Eating together in the first century was all about the company, all about the conversation. It was an event. And to sit at the table as an event meant that you were partnering with these people. And Jesus in this moment understands something that I fear we have forgotten, and certainly the Pharisees had forgotten. It's that you cannot have impact. And so he sits at the table. 
This is the very thing that he says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, and a light dare not be hidden. Salt dare not be hidden, and it needs to be rubbed on something in order to preserve it. That's who you are, and for impact, there must be contact. The Great Commission, then, calls us to have impact. You cannot have impact without contact. The Great Commission calls you as a follower of Jesus to give your life in service to others. How? By being in contact with them. What does it look like? Dining at the table. Everyone can do that because we all gotta eat. I love the way Martin Luther once put it. Martin Luther said it this way. The kingdom is the of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. O blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, if Christ had done what you are doing, who would have been spared? Martin Luther was never one to mince words. That statement cuts like a knife at the heart. If Christ had done what we are doing, who would have been spared? Answer, not a single one. God in his great love sent his son deep into the brokenness. Jesus chose to enter into our midst and dine at the table with sinners and tax collectors, not recoil. He instead entered our midst. What does this look like for us? It's step three of what does it look like to give your life in service to others? We, we talked early in the series, um, part one, or posture, not position, right? We're to take up a posture of a servant, not, not pursue positions, but our, our calling as disciples is to pursue a posture of a servant. Then Charles last week talked about caring for the least. We're to meet the needs of those that God puts in front of us. We're to meet those needs. It, view that as an opportunity, an open door. But step three, according to Jesus, live in the way of Jesus it means that we call out to the lost. Very simply, just to take up the example of Jesus, it means that those who don't know Jesus. There's countless other ways to do this as well. But Jesus shows us how simple it can be by just dining with those who don't yet know him. What does this look like for you? I think we just start exactly where Jesus did. We start where Jesus did, with a willingness to dine, to, to dwell, to sit at the table. Let me ask this question. When was the last time that you sat and dined with someone totally, completely different from you. Not of your circle, but far outside of your circle. When was the last time you sought to make that invitation? When was the last time you used your home to host sinners and tax collectors? People just like you. When was the last time that you dined and you dwelled and you didn't fidget at your seat and look for an excuse to get 
but instead you lingered at the table, relishing the opportunity that Jesus came for this. And we as his disciples, to look like Jesus every time we're willing to give our lives in service to those who don't know him. What does it look like? Looks like my friend Bill, who's an engineer but uses his lunch breaks to invite guys on his team out for lunch and has been doing so faithfully year after year, planting little seeds that are beginning to bloom. And now he's had opportunity at these lunches to talk about Jesus and to talk about his faith. And he dines and he dwells at the table. What does this look like for you? Looks like my friend Mark or my friend Chris who own businesses and, and don't view their employees as just employees but views them as family and loves on them and, and dines with them when they're on break and seeks to disciple them over the long haul. What does this look like? Maybe it looks like helping your neighbor when you see them out working on their fence Patching a pipe that burst after the storm. Work. And you know they don't love yard work because you don't love yard work. But there's an opportunity somewhere in there to run across the street and connect. And the more that we seek to do that, the more that they realize that you're someone safe that they can go to. Maybe it looks like a block party. And those moments when everybody is willing to connect, like Easter, you throw a party. You throw a great feast, and you invite them to the table. That's why year after year we do it in our neighborhood. We have neighbors come up to us constantly. Oh, like, you guys are the street, right? Like, the ones on that cul-de-sac. You're always throwing those parties. And man, I wish I lived on your street. What a compliment, because there's nothing special about our street except the fact that we serve great food. And we invite everybody on the block times a year. And we put out cones and we let the kids play in the street. And we sit around in a big circle. And we linger until the sun goes down. Year after year after year of doing that. Three years of doing that before the pandemic hit and my neighbor asked me, hey, what's it look like for you right now to be doing what you do? I can't go to work. What are you doing? And after year after year of dining together and helping with fences and helping with cars every time they wouldn't start, I had enough credit in the bank. I'd love for you to see. And I shot him an invitation and he joined us the rest of the series. Because it begins when someone's car doesn't start and you care. It begins when you're just present and you invite them to dine and dwell. It begins when you walk across the street and you have the courage to extend an invitation. 
not just an invitation to join you at church, but an invitation to join you for the after party. Because every invitation here should be followed up with lunch there. So what does it look like for you this week? Can I just challenge you? Would you be willing this week to pray a dangerous prayer? And the prayer is this. God, me. Three simple words. Lord, include me. Include me in your work this week. And what is Jesus' work? His work is about seeking and saving the lost. Include me in your work. Would you be willing to pray that dangerous prayer? And then would you be willing to walk out these doors today with eyes wide open and watch and wait for God to include you? And would you be willing to obey when the opportunity comes? Would you pray with me? Father, we hear and see from the pages of your scripture the beauty of your son sent, given to us for our sin. And now the call from him on our lives to go and do likewise, to go and make disciples. And so, Father, as disciples, we pray a dangerous prayer. Lord, would you include us? Would you give us eyes to see opportunities this week to be the hands and feet of to help someone who is in need? to walk across the street and begin a conversation and to trust you with it, to trust that you will show up when we have no idea what to say or how to get it started. Be obedient to go as your son Jesus did. And so, Father, would you include me? And would your spirit work and move strength and obedience and words. And may it be all for your glory because we thank you. As the sinners and tax collectors, we thank you for people like us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you want to talk to someone about a decision you've made or let us know how God is moving through this series, visit nebc.ch slash contact. Be sure to stay connected with us throughout the week on social media or by subscribing to our weekly podcast. You can also stay up to date with the latest information about what's going on here at Northeast by subscribing to the Northeast News, our periodic newsletter that comes right to your inbox to keep you in the know. Thanks for listening to today's message, and we hope that you join us as we continue to make disciples on mission for Jesus Christ.